Well, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Overcoming Mental Health Challenges podcast. I'm your host, Evan Transu, a.k.a. Mr. Health Coach Ev. Uh, Thank you guys so much for tuning in again. I don't know if you know what's going on yet, but if you're listening to this in the month of February 2020, uh, we're having a really fun time this month. Multiple episodes coming out each week. We've had uh, you know a ton of different people coming on, a lot of speakers, things like that. So very powerful stories. I've been loving this myself because a lot of the people that I've been hearing from, um, I know nothing about, and I have never heard their story before. So it's very cool and inspirational to be able to listen to these stories live and have that a genuine interaction with them. So I love doing this, but please feel free after you listen to this episode today, um, go check out some of those or uh, stay tuned for some of the other episodes that are coming out. That's going to be going on uh, the entire month of February. We're completely booked out with interviews. A lot of them already recorded for the month of March. So just really super exciting times. Very thankful uh, for everyone that's been coming on and helping out because I know these stories really help a lot of people. Um, Also, If you do not know already and you've been following for a while, my book is out on Amazon. It's available for purchase, Uh, Overcoming Mental Health Challenges, How I Resolved 13 Years of Mental Health Issues Naturally. Uh, So again, you could search that on Amazon. That's available at the moment, uh, both in Kindle and paperback. But I hope one day, uh, maybe several months from now, to be doing an audiobook or something like that. Anyway, we have a very interesting uh, guest tonight. Uh, This is the first time we've had someone... We've had some professional speakers on for sure, but I don't think we've ever had anyone on yet with the amount of time this person has spent um, in the industry. I'll let him tell more about it, but I'm pretty sure he's been in for over 10 years at this point. So kind of crazy to think about um, and really just says a lot because it's not an easy industry to get into and it's certainly not an easy industry to um, stay into. So I think that says a lot. Uh, This is also I did not tell him I was going to do this, but I just like to. Uh, give credit where it's due. This is the only person I've had on so far that I'm giving a bio for, and it's going to keep it short. It's definitely not a full list of accomplishments here, but um, this guy's done a lot of really interesting stuff in the space, so I wanted to shout it out. Um, we have tonight uh, tonight with us Mr. Jordan Burnham. Um, he is a nationally recognized mental health speaker. He's been featured in People Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and USA Today. Uh, he's made appearances on the Dr. Phil Show, CNN, The Early Show, Good Morning America, um, and his piece uh, with ESPN E60 was actually nominated for an Emmy. Um, He's spoken uh, at the White House in front of President Obama, and again, without any exaggeration, uh, this is only a fraction of the things that this guy has done for the space. So uh, you guys are in for a real treat tonight. He has an amazing story. I have been lucky enough to actually hear this live, um, and I've totally... Uh, fanboyed on a few of his other podcast episodes that he's done um, and his stuff on YouTube. So <laughs> um, I, I do know the story well, but we're glad to have him here. So uh, Jordan, are, are you on, man? Can you hear us? Yeah, thanks, man. That was uh, that was more than kind uh, of a, of a bio. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem, man. And that's why I'm like, <laughs> all right, I'm not going to tell him. I'll just all hype him up. But um, it, it's the truth, man. You know, it's, it's a really uh, – powerful thing uh, that you've been able to do those things so it's really cool and i like to give people credit um where it's due for sure so we always start this podcast off with the exact same question and uh, we usually end with the same question as well and the first question we start with is what was jordan like as a kid and when we say a kid we mean you know anywhere from that 5 to 10 11 12 year old 
range? You know, just what were the things that you like to do? Maybe some favorite stuff in school. And we'd like to do this um, because maybe there was nothing going on with the mental health stuff at that time. Um, and if there was, you can feel free to mention it. But just tell us a little bit about that range, like what was going on during that time. Yeah, when I was a kid, um, when I was younger, I actually didn't talk a lot. I observed a ton and I would whisper to like maybe my sister or my mom or dad if I wanted to say something. Uh, I, I really was kind of shy, but more observant more than anything. And then I think the one thing that kind of gave me my voice was playing sports. And so my dad was an athletic director at high schools and colleges. So I got to go to so many different sporting events to the point where I was just always active and I love playing sports. And so, you know, the, the first one was definitely basketball. My dad was a collegiate basketball player. And so I, I remember just going to his basketball camps and just loving it. I remember even playing with baseball. Baseball is something that I picked up when I was really young too. Love doing that. So I was always in the yard playing one sport or another and incredibly active. And also when I was a kid, I was, and to this day, I still am incredibly close to my sister. Um, so my, my sister is five years older than me. And one of the things my brother-in-law says is that whenever my sister is telling her favorite childhood memories, uh, it always involves me because we did, we, we spent a lot of time together. And that was the one person I would watch movies with and we would talk throughout the night and there were just so many different activities even playing piano was something that I really loved when I was little because of my uh, grandfather who also played the piano and, and organ and so I guess that goes back to being observant is like I would watch what other people were doing I would consider it fun or not and then I would try and do the same thing and yeah that was that was kind of me when I was a kid very active very involved quiet at first, but then really started to find my voice as I was getting older. Sure. So everything at that time was going pretty well in terms of the mental health stuff, like nothing to complain about yet. No, no, I, everything was pretty normal up, I think, until third grade is when things got a little different. But everything up to then was pretty normal. Gotcha. And I got to ask, what college uh, did your dad play for? Uh, Slippery Rock University. Cool. Yeah, he was the uh, yeah, he was the starting point guard. Had I think he had the assist record for a, a short period of time there. But yeah, he's to this day, he actually still loves to play um, basketball whenever he can. So he was a big influence on me. Nice. So he's like one of those guys that shows up <laughs> at the Y and you can't tell that he's going to be sick and then <laughs> totally just destroys <laughs> well, you or something like that. <laughs> his passing is so incredible and he's so good at the no look passes. So it like it throws you off because he is like he's 62. But he can go and pick up a basketball at the Y and he will throw these no look passes behind his back. And people like don't catch him at first because they weren't expecting it. Uh, so <laughs> he definitely still likes to show off, though. Yeah. And yeah, before I shattered my foot a few years ago and I just haven't really gotten back into basketball since then. But I remember, man, you know, you show up to the Y and there's these guys <laughs> in their in their 50s, um, late 40s, late 50s. And you're just wondering, like, OK, you know, how are they going to be? And then when you find out what they were doing when they were younger, you're like, yeah, these guys right. are good, man. They're not, they're kicking my ass. Um, so yep. yeah, they're fun to play with. That's cool. So what was going on in third grade? You had mentioned, um, what was kind of the start there where you were maybe seeing some signs of some things not going so great? Yeah. So when I was in third grade, we, my sister and I were attending a private school because that's where my dad worked. 
in third grade, and it was a very diverse school. It was a school that felt like a big family because it was K through 12. So it just kind of had that feel to it. But in third grade, that's when my dad got a new job. So we have to go from this private school to a public school. And like, we didn't live in a great neighborhood. And I get to this school and all of a sudden, I just, I feel like I don't fit in. I feel like, all right, how do I make friends? How do I talk to people? And then it was just hard because when you're switching schools at a really, really young age, you don't necessarily know exactly what to say or how to meet people. So you just come across as very awkward. And so I think I had a difficult transition because for me, switching schools and going from a private to a public school, uh, and this school was probably 60% black, 40% white. There wasn't much diversity. But when I got there, being African-American and talking the way that I was, I was made fun of because I, I was told, well, I talked to proper uh, the way I dress. I was still wearing the same clothes that I wore when I went to private school, uh, the uniform that we had. And so I got made fun of a lot because I just did not fit in with the way that I talked, with the way that I dress, with the way that I acted even. So that was kind of the first time I felt really sad. Uh, I didn't know the word depressed. I didn't know if there was a definition for what I was feeling, but there were times where I would cry. I'd get really down on myself. And I remember the moment when I thought, all right, I need to hold in all of my emotions was third grade. My teacher, Mr. Hoover called me a crybaby in front of everyone because I was, you know, I was getting picked up, picked on. I got beat up, you know, a few different times. So I would cry whenever I was sad. And he called me a crybaby in front of everyone in the class. And I thought, I'm just not going to show emotions anymore. Maybe if I'm sad, I'll just look down. I'll say that I'm tired. But I can tell that if I'm going to be called a crybaby, why show emotion? So I held so much in inside until I got home. And that's when my sister was home. That's when we sat down and we talked and I told her about my day. She told me about what she was going through because she was going through the same type of process as well. So that even made the, the bond between my sister and I even and closer, but also too, it was just the first time of not feeling happy while at school. Good. Again, third grade is a, is a younger age to experience that, but it's definitely something you can feel. For sure. And that's, you know what, it's not particularly encouraging. Um, it's one thing when we get it from our fellow classmates and things like that. It, it sucks, but we almost always know like, okay, like we have some good classmates that are nice and then some that are a little tougher. Um, hopefully, you know, people at least have that diversity. But it's another thing when it's coming from the teacher. I mean, that's a particularly <laughs> uh, discouraging thing when someone's doing something like that. Yeah, yeah. So as time went on then, because if this is what's already going on in third grade and, you know, you're having some of these struggles, how did that, um, and I know these, some of these are loaded questions. I should have prefaced that before. I mean, obviously uh, you did great with that first one. I mean, feel free to answer these with as much detail as is needed, but how did that progress into, you know, something more maybe during the early teens or mid teens, because I, I obviously know your story and I know that's when things started to take a little um, bit of a different turn, but I'm not really actually sure how um, that turn happened. Yeah. I think growing up past that, one of the themes, whenever I'm speaking without even telling the, the students or the audience 
really the the theme of a lot of it is is just transitions that you go through in life and how do you cope with them and for me I didn't know how to open up about certain things and so when my sister goes off to um, college when I was in seventh grade up to that point things had gotten better because one of the things I learned at a very young age when I was getting picked on and feeling like I didn't fit in if I could make you laugh I would have a better chance of you just not liking me or just you thinking, oh, I need to, to beat him up or pick on him because he's different. If I can make you laugh, the person who's looking at me differently, maybe things will be okay. Uh, and so I kind of took on that role. I was the class clown. I knew what I was doing. I knew when I was going to get in trouble, but I would take a risk if I could just earn a little more respect from my classmates. And that's something I really held on to. Uh, so I, that was my favorite thing to do, was to be able to make people laugh. And I think that really helped me throughout elementary school and even laugh about a lot of the things leading up to middle school. But you know, seventh grade, my sister leaves for college. And it doesn't seem like a big deal at the time. I'm thinking, oh, well, she'll be back during break and it'll be fine. But she leaves and... I couldn't come home to that best friend anymore. I felt like I, I couldn't really open up to anyone in the way that I did with her. So it's almost like I, I didn't have a backup plan as far as having a support system of someone to go to and to talk to. So I think that was one of the biggest uh, issues that I really faced then, but also that same year, my dad takes a new job. And at that point we lived in right outside of Pittsburgh and he's going to get a job right outside of Philadelphia. And so five-hour drive, I'm thinking, man, I have to switch schools again. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of seventh grade, I said, I'm going to get this out of the way as quick as possible so that I can just get used to people. I can try and fit in somehow. And that's what I did. Seventh, middle of seventh grade, I switched schools again. And it's, it's kind of the same thing. Of It's a transition of, all right, well, how do I fit in? Who do I talk to? Where do I sit at lunch? And all of these things are kind of going through my head all at once. But again, my sister was the person I would talk to about that. And to not have that was something I really struggled with. Right. And yeah, the school thing is so tough. I actually, it's, it's interesting that that's such a, a part of your story because in third grade, I did the same thing. I wasn't switching far, thankfully, um, but there was a forced transfer of a limited amount of kids in our area. And I just remember, yeah, you're just like, what do I do? Like, how do I make <laughs> new friends? And people don't really think about that. Um, I got lucky because what they did, I guess their the school strategy was that we're going to assign you a friend. I <laughs> mean, um, this person is going to help you out. And that sounds like a terrible idea um, in many ways. Um, but ironically, that person I got assigned to in third grade is um, in the next room over. He's one of my roommates now at 24 years old. Um, so it's weird how those things happen. But a lot of the times that's not what happens. And I remember... Because it's weird. I would have never analyzed this until, uh, you know, having this conversation and you kind of bringing this up, you know, someone in seventh grade, like when we have the quote unquote, the new kid that comes in, right? Like they need to be one of a couple things. They need to be like outrageously good looking and then they're good to go. Or <laughs> they need to be a total class clown type person. Like they need to be entertaining people and doing things to make others laugh. Otherwise, unfortunately, they just kind of get rejected um, from the group. So Obviously, like you're saying, you know, that I guess that class clown aspect, did you continue that in the new school in seventh grade and stuff like that? 
Yeah, I, I definitely did. I did the same kind of thing of, I, I enjoy, and it, it wasn't even like necessarily a coping mechanism at that point, but it was more so of a, hey, I feel like this is my way to not be awkward, is to try and tell jokes and make people laugh. And I think that was what kind of made me feel comfortable and what people opened up to talking to me after realizing that, yeah, all right, he likes to laugh. He likes to have fun. He likes to tell jokes, even if some of the jokes don't land oh well. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> for me, that's kind of just what I, I used and relied on to communicate to people. And it's, it's weird that even to think back, that's something I did in seventh grade. But to think of it now, being an adult, being 30, when I'm speaking to an audience, humor is one of the ways I like to communicate with my audience because I feel like that's the most natural way for me to relay a lot of the things that I'm feeling or a lot of the things that I went through. So that kind of gave me a foot in the door as far as just trying to fit in. But the, the big, the other one is sports. If you're, if you're somewhat decent at sports, you kind of get this acceptance. That's of, a really so it's like all right well new kids kind of but he's starting on the basketball team so I guess we gotta we're his teammate now so I guess we kind of have to be somewhat nice to him and so that's a, a really other way in when you're new to his school was to say hey I play this sport and luckily it was basketball season so I fit right in and that was probably the core group of friends that I had originally were the, the guys on the basketball team <laughs> it's, I'm kind of laughing because First of all, you're totally right. And if anything, if you're really good at the sport, that's probably the number one way to get it out of the degree. I didn't think about that because um, I've been – listen, man, I'm good at a few things. You give me a math textbook, uh, I'll kill I'll kill it any day. I can compete with the best of them. Um, you give me a ball, a bat, you know, typically those sports don't go too well for me. Um, so <laughs> I, I never really thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, a new basketball player, baseball, football player comes in. I mean, you could be a total stud um in the school so that's interesting i like to do also through everyone's unique experiences i love to have these like little mini uh golden nuggets or lessons maybe um throughout the podcast and we've never actually it sounds like such a simple thing maybe it's just never come up um i've never really had someone on the podcast yet that had this kind of switch around from different schools um what advice would you maybe give to someone listening assuming you know maybe they're a teenager right now uh, maybe they're even in late elementary school and they're listening. And they're like, oh, man, I went through that same transition or I'm about to switch to a different school. What would be maybe one of the positive ways um, looking back that they could make new friends or, um, you know, just kind of help themselves fit in and get accepted at the new place? Yeah, I think the biggest thing and it kind of goes to the sports thing is just being involved in different things. So I would try and do that after school. And for me, that was playing sports. But there's, especially now, there's just so many clubs that you can join. There's so many ways to kind of interact with people after school. So I think that's definitely a huge part of it. The other part is just realizing it's okay to not initially fit in. It's okay if you don't find those right group of people immediately. It's not like um, there's a deadline <laughs> in order for you to make friends. It's definitely something that's a gradual uh, gradual um, process so I I feel like if I were talking to the younger my younger self of all right you're going to switch schools and here's what's going to happen be yourself maybe people think it's awkward but that's okay because the people who think that personality is cool are going to be your friends for a very long time don't feel the need to rush immediately into wanting to be 
popular or wanting to have a ton of friends, really it's just how can I find um, almost like a support system of people around me at school where I feel like I can get through the day. Uh, there's someone that I can talk to, I can laugh with, I can sit with at lunch, those kind of things. I think that's what I would probably focus on looking back on it is not trying to please everyone at the same time, not trying to be the most popular person in the school, just being myself. And sometimes that was a funny self. Sometimes that was an awkward self. Sometimes it was fun, but I would make sure that uh, I just get involved. And through that, I think it's an easier way of feeling like you belong, some, some, sorts, some source of like community. And that's what I definitely feel like I didn't have immediately when I first got to school, but eventually that did happen. Got it. And yeah, that's solid advice because when I got a little older and just in the sense of being out of high school and stuff, I realized that a lot of people, even, you know, from old religious texts to rappers to celebrities, whatever, um, they all say a pretty similar thing. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you know, depending on who you're quoting, but it's something along the lines of, you know, someone out there is going to not like you anyway, no matter who you are, the greatest people of all time. Unfortunately, there has always been some type of hater on that person. And that's actually a fantastic thing. And the reason it's fantastic is because if it is true that no matter what I am or what I do, someone is going to like me and someone is going to not like me, isn't that the perfect excuse to be ourselves then? And you know what I mean? Because then the people that like you, at least they're people that you want to like you. They're people that are probably similar to you. Um, And unfortunately, you know, that's something, again, I didn't really learn myself um, until after high school. But fortunately, I'm glad I learned it at all because I've realized, you know, the older I get, I've met people, man, that are 40, 50 years old. I'm sure you've had the same experience. I don't think they've realized that yet. And they're they're still trying Mm -hmm. to, you know, fit that mold of what they think other people expect them to be or want of them and i'm just like that's just it, it's unnecessary it really is unnecessary so i think that's um solid advice we're talking about kind of seventh grade middle school as time went on through there were you were you doing well in middle school especially since you were kind of getting involved with the sports were things okay then um or did you know things start going a little south then or was that more high school i think seventh grade was the first time where you know, there's, there's one thing I always say is um, the, the difference between depressed versus depression. Depressed, uh, and this is simplifying it, obviously, but depressed, you know what you're depressed about. The, the, the sad thing that's happening in your life that is making you feel that way. Where with depression, you can wake up and one day and have no idea why you feel so sad. You have no idea why you're crying and just don't feel like yourself. For me, I think middle school, seventh grade, that was the first time that happened of, I'd say, all right. And I would try and come up with some rationale as to why I was feeling depressed. So I'd be like, well, I don't know. I didn't, I, I didn't do great on that one test a few months ago. I guess maybe that's why I'm this sad. Or maybe it's because of a girlfriend that you know broke up with me a few months ago. Maybe that's why I'm so sad. I would always try and find this reason of like, man, why do I feel this way? And I remember thinking uh, for the first time in seventh grade thinking, I know something is different with me and I don't know what it is because we weren't educated on a lot of mental health things, but I knew something was different, not knowing how to communicate that, but also not understanding myself exactly what I was feeling. 
I would say that was in that time frame when that started happening. Okay. And yeah, you, you make a really key point there for people listening, because obviously, you know, me being 24, you being 30, um, these are hardly old ages, right? But the thing that people don't understand, if you're 18, even listening to this, the shift in the perspectives and resources, um, even at a societal level for mental health issues, I mean, it's changing dramatically by the year, let alone. I mean, for you, it would have been, I mean, seventh grade, that's 12 years old. We're talking almost 17, 18 years now. You, you know, that's a huge changes um, have happened uh, for the better, generally for the better um, with the acceptance of this stuff. And I think that's been, you know, again, social media is a bittersweet thing, right? We, we have some downsides to that. But I think a lot of people have been coming out on that, especially people of status. Um, and I think that's helped out a lot, making it real. And then we have a lot of things like, you know, even what you're doing in schools, what I get to do in schools, like those things help end the stigma around these things. So, yeah, I can imagine at that time, especially um, it makes it just doubly hard to maybe come out and speak about this type of stuff uh, when you really don't even fully understand what it is. I definitely relate to you when you said you're trying to connect these dots, you know, because you, 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 we live in a cause and effect reality, right? Like we're like, OK, I feel this way. I have to feel this way about something. Um, so you're searching for that to kind of try to rationalize it. Um, and then you got to go out and if the resources are even available, you know, start that conversation. Um, was that a conversation that you started at the time or did you kind of continue to, you know, fight this thing um, one on one? I think a lot of it. Uh, no, I definitely didn't say a lot of things. I think the first person who really noticed it was my sister who was home on break one year. And I believe this was in eighth grade. And she was home from school and she walked into my room and I was just kind of staring in the thin air. I wasn't really doing anything. I wasn't responding. She knew something was off, something was wrong. So she said, let's get in the car, let's go to McDonald's, let's eat fries and let's talk. And she was kind of that that one person that I would open up and and talk to and got comfortable with doing that. But as soon as she left, I I think I went kind of into the same behavior of just laughing, smiling, just acting like, all right, nothing is really that bad. Because I, again, I just can't connect the dots. I can't simplify it to one thing. So it becomes frustrating in that way of no one ever no one really told me, hey, mental health is gray. It's not black or white. It's not this happens and that's why you feel this way. There's so much gray that comes with it. And not understanding that at a young age, it's probably where I I struggled with a lot of it. So really the only reason that I went to go see a therapist to begin with was my mom. Because my mom has depression and what she at that time was able to do that my dad wasn't able to at at that point in time in 10th grade she was able to look at my behavior, especially if they were impulsive behaviors with yelling, screaming, cursing. She could look at that and say, there's a root of this. Something deeper is going on. It's not that he just dropped a glass because that's not what's going on. There's something deeper going on for him to react this way. My dad wasn't there yet. My, my dad didn't necessarily understand that. So when he saw my actions and behaviors, he would think that's disrespect and that's it. He's just responding to one thing. So the reason I went to go see a therapist was I failed my driver's test and it was, it was for a third time. So I'm not going to pretend like it was my first time and I failed and I was just terrible at parallel parking. I, I didn't practice. I didn't care. I just thought that was the, I didn't need to practice parallel parking and be fine. 
So, you know, being the 16 year old that I was at the time, I decided to go for my, my third time going for this. And, you know, I was, I was, so, I was on such a high cause I knew I was going to finally pass my driver's test. I knew it. I told my friends, Hey man, we're going to drive wherever you guys want to go. I'm going to have my license. Everything's going to be awesome. And so when I, I, I got there and I, I failed my driver's test for uh, the third time and my reaction, and, and this is where it comes back to the mental health kind of standpoint of it, of where I was at emotionally. There are a lot of people who can fail a driver's test and say, oh man, that sucks. It says, well, I'll just practice and come back. But for me, my reaction was not that. My reaction was, this is the end of the world. I'm so pissed off. I'm so angry. I'm going to curse at the driver instructor, even though he did nothing wrong. I'm going to yell and curse at my dad, even though, again, he did nothing wrong. And I just stormed off. And my dad tried to tell me to get back in the car, but I just stormed off. And eventually he left. And again, he took that as very much a sign of disrespect. But when my mom heard how angry my dad was, and when my mom heard, wait, Jordan failed a driver's test, and he cursed and yelled at you like he's never has. That's not just about the driver's test. That's something deeper going on. Uh, and so she, yeah, she was the one who said, we need to go as a family, go see a therapist. That's when I sat down and it was not, I'm, I'm always honest with everything uh, when it comes to how I tried to get better, especially in high school. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say my therapy sessions originally were awesome and great it was it was not a goodwill hunting moment immediately of like robin williams hugging matt damon and saying it's not your fault and having that breakthrough emotionally that was not it whatsoever it was i was angry i didn't want to be there i would just shut down and not talk i didn't understand the concept of talk therapy and all this is going on at 16 while you're supposed to be focusing on practice for sports supposed to be focusing on your grades supposed to be just you know again just living your typical average high school life but when you have all that going on emotionally mentally and not telling anyone about it that's a lot to hold on to right and i appreciate two things there a lot one is um the fact of the honesty and the transparency through okay hey at first uh this wasn't something that was going so great and i i strive to be as honest with this stuff as possible, full disclosure as possible. And the reason for that is because if we only tell these like little 50% of the story things, we're not going to connect with the people that are suffering in silence because they're going, they're suffering in silence for a reason. And then they're going to think, oh, wow, you know, I, I went to, maybe they went to a therapist if we're lucky um, and they had this awful experience. And if everyone came on here and just said it was amazing the first time, uh, you know, it'd be misleading, but we've had everyone uh, all, any different type of treatment or uh, way of dealing with this stuff that you could possibly imagine. Uh, we've had, you know, some people that had a great first experience and then others that um, maybe didn't have the best first experience, good second. Some have just never had a good experience with some of the treatments or uh, methods ever. Um, so I definitely appreciate that. And I think that's an interesting thing that happened with your mom as well, because you could have the best parents in the world 
and they could still take the position of your dad at that time where they're mis- uh, misinterpreting it is just a plain disrespect thing. And I don't blame him for that. Right. Um, and it obviously doesn't sound like you do either. It's just very interesting that your mom was able to see that. I think that's beneficial. Um, and that's good that she started the conversation with therapy. But unfortunately, um, it doesn't sound like that, like you said, was doing that much. Was there? What was the steps then, I guess, when it became clear that therapy wasn't really doing what it was supposed to do for you at that time? I think it wasn't until I was able to sit down with that therapist one-on-one. And it, it was, it was kind of a slow process of, <clears throat> all right, I'll, I'll tell you how my day went, or I'll tell you how this week went. And I'll just be very matter of fact with what I'm saying <clears throat> and not necessarily get into the mental health standpoint of things or saying how I feel about something. It wasn't until after a while, I really, and I, I wish there were so many things I wish I journaled when I was younger. I really wish I knew exactly what therapy session I finally felt like, oh, you know what, we can, we can actually talk about some things. And if I had to look back and, and think about it, I, I would say it was still maybe like one or two months in where I thought I could sit down and talk to this woman who I had never met, who she doesn't know me. She doesn't know my family. She's not my sister. She doesn't know, like, she's not the same age as me. She's not even close to the same age as me. How is this going to happen? Uh, and it really did. It kind of took some time to realize she's not there to necessarily try and relate to me, but more so just help me understand and process a lot of the things that I was feeling. Because at that point, I was just very much not able to. Uh, and so, man, yeah, that, that took some time. And it's it's not easy. I, I, I say that, like you said, it, it'd be very, we wouldn't be doing audiences a favor by not being honest, by saying that everything worked out the first time and everything happened quickly. And I've been great ever since. Now, there's so many ups and downs that come along with taking care of your mental health. But I would say that second or third month that I was going to talk therapy, I really got to know her in the way that her style as a therapist was. And that kind of worked for me. And we moved on from there. But there were still things I wasn't completely honest about. There were still days I didn't want to go, but I know that I had to because my parents were making me. So you have a bit of back and forth, I think, when you're younger and you're seeing a therapist. Because part of it is, okay, I I do want to see someone. But the other part of it is, okay, I know you talked to my parents, not necessarily about specific things, but I know you still kind of communicate to them. And I know that I have to be there because... You know, they, they know where I'm supposed to be. And it's a tricky process, I think, try, trying to understand and process all of it at the same time. Uh, but it was helpful. Absolutely. When I first started seeing a therapist at 16, uh, was I, was it something I took 100% advantage of? No, because I, I wasn't honest enough. And I also had a therapist and a psychiatrist. Okay. Psychiatrist was there for medication, not for talk therapy. Uh, I think I was in her like office for maybe five to 10 minutes at the most. And then I was given medication and that was kind of it. So there, there definitely wasn't this full process of making sure I was getting better, especially with the medication part of it, because I didn't know how to respond to that or how to be honest with that either. But the last thing is, um, and I hear kids say this a lot, you don't want to complain about your therapist because your parents went out of their way 
like find this therapist to make sure that you could see them. And on top of that, I don't want to offend the therapist by saying, Hey, I'm not sure this is a hundred percent going to work for me. I don't want to hurt their feelings. And it, it's, it's crazy. Now that we're talking about it, I'm saying it out loud. I can't even imagine at 16 trying to t- take in all of this and also trying to be um, 100% honest with what, how you're feeling and what you're feeling. <laughs> right. Because it sounds overwhelming just saying it, let alone feeling it. Yeah. And that's why I think these kinds of conversations are so useful, you know, because when you have these perspectives that we have now, I think we're at this like perfect middle ground, right? Because we're not these ancient 60 year old people that are just telling kids what to do or whatever. And we've had these experiences. It's really not that long ago. Right. And, and still something that we can connect to and be like, Hey, this is what we just wish we had kind of known and understand at that time. So um, that stuff's really helpful. Now, if, I mean, of course you're pretty open about things. Would you say that the medication that the psychiatrist gave at first, was that something that was helpful for you at that time? I think originally, I think I changed uh, medications twice when I was in high school. And when I finally found the right medication, I felt better, but there were two things that, you know, really, really kind of hindered me in that entire process. And one was, I remember there were times where I would take it three months straight. I would take my medication every single day and I felt great. I was like, awesome. I beat depression. I don't have to take these anymore. On top of that, I won't even tell anyone I'm not taking my medication Oh, because months from now, I'm going to be like, hey, guys, I beat depression. I don't even take medication anymore. And everyone's going to be so proud of me. So, you know, rational things like that pop in my head when I was younger. And then the other thing was the drinking. I mean, and that, that's a, something I haven't even touched on yet. But the, the drinking on top of taking medication or to think, and this is you know, definitely when I I probably should have been like, oh, this is a problem. Whenever my mindset was, I can either take medication on a daily basis or on the nights I can drink, I can skip it because I know that's not good to mix both at the same time. And that was kind of my way of thinking a lot in high school. And obviously, when you combine those things together of not taking it consistently when you think of the drinking and not just taking care of myself in a healthy way on top of it I I, I always look at it as and, and I'm sure you know I've, I get this question a lot and I'm sure other speakers do too who take medication or have taken medication it, it very much is a balance of things and if you're an athlete and I say this to college athletes all the time like if you're an athlete and you're at you're training, you're not just going to the track every single day and never in the weight room. You're never in the weight room every single day and not doing sprints. Uh, you're never, I mean, you're never just doing only one thing. So for me, I think I looked at it as, all right, I only have to, you know, see this therapist every other day, maybe once a week. And I don't want to depend on my medication. So I'm not going to depend on it at all, as opposed to saying, okay, I'll take my medication. Um, I see my therapist. I'll find a healthy, healthy balance of both of those things. That's something I definitely didn't do. And I think part of that was because I didn't think of medication in that way. I thought I was only depending on a pill to make me happy when realizing that's just not how it works. Okay. Yeah. Great analogy about the, um, the, the sprinting in the weight room and um, just a great perspective in general. I always ask people because we, again, 
although I have my specific things that have worked for me, I can't deny that, right? It's been, it's had a big enough impact for me that, you know, that's why I wrote um, the book that I wrote on it, because that specific stuff worked for me. But I've realized that, you know, I'm not going to get anywhere by being biased with it. So I like to just hear different perspectives. Um, and that's kind of cool to know that, yes, so it, it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I want to make sure I understand correctly, medication was one piece of the puzzle as so long as you were using it correctly. Is that kind of what I, is that what I'm understanding? Right, exactly. Got it. So you had mentioned the drinking. Of course, um, I have some insight on your story and I, that's actually the next, you know, kind of area I wanted to go to. Um, how did that get started, man? Because I know for me, the minute I decided to use a substance and for me, it was actually marijuana first. I tried marijuana over a year before I ever touched a sip of alcohol. Um, the minute I use, though, it, it could impl- replace marijuana or alcohol with any substance here that you're using to cope with, you know, kind of mental health issues that are still going on. Uh, that was probably the worst thing I ever did. Were you using that as an intentional coping mechanism at first? Or was this just some dumb decisions that, you know, high school students sometimes make? Yeah, I think for me, alcohol, I think it goes into that gray area as well of like it wasn't just one reason why I drank, or even two reasons why I drank, I think it eventually progressively got worse, but I wasn't aware as to why. Um, and so the the first time I ever actually got drunk and, and was in ninth grade, it was my first high school party. And I went and my dad was the most popular person in my high school being the athletic director. He's very loud. He's, he's funny. He gets everyone to smile and to laugh. He's uh, someone once referred to him as the athletic director and the school mascot at the same time, because <laughs> he just gets everyone involved and excited. So when I walk into a party and upperclassmen find out that that's my dad, I remember the first party I went to, someone said, oh, that's Mr. B's son. We, we have to get him drunk. And that was kind of my introduction to alcohol was to not only drink, but to binge drink. But no one ever called it that. No one ever called it a blackout. They just thought you know, everyone called it having a good time and forgetting something. No one, no one ever brought up the term alcoholism or addiction while drinking was occurring because, you know, part of that has to do with our society and the way that we normalize it. Part of that has to do with the high school that I went to and the way we definitely normalized not only drinking, but binge drinking as well. And when I, I think when I first drank, I thought, all right, well, this is the cool thing to do. This is what people do when they're at parties. That's, you know, fine by me. And then it became, all right, I'm, you know, getting drunk is something I don't mind. I I didn't get drunk the first time and think, oh, this is horrible. I'll never do it again. Um, I I didn't feel that way whatsoever. But I thought, all right, drinking is my way in sometimes with talking to people, or it just makes me feel like one of the guys, or, it's just something that we're going to do that weekend if we're going to a party. Understood. Where I think, oh, sorry. Where, yeah, no, it's okay. I think where progressively it got worse was I slowly started to realize me and my guy friends did not talk about things on a deeper level until we were drinking, um, especially by the time we were drunk. I started to notice that when I drank, I could escape from whatever I was feeling woke up the next day and it felt 10 times worse, but at least for that moment, I could catch some type of escape. <clears throat> also, you know, when I drank, I, I felt some type of, okay, I'm all right right now. 
I don't have to worry about anything right now. Don't have to worry about anything tonight. Maybe tomorrow, next week, I have to face some repercussions or face some of the things that I'm going through. But for right now, I can just forget. Uh, and to me, that was just high school. You know, no one, you know, I, I remember I was um, talking to a student and they asked me, you know, why didn't you ever think alcohol is a depressant? This is making things worse. And my answer is always the same, is that when I was in high school, we, we got a don't drink and don't do drugs kind of assembly. And it was a person who basically, there was no nuance. It was just a guy who was like, hey, don't drink and drive or you might kill someone. And it's like, oh, well, okay, that's a, it's a powerful message. Um, I remember there was a woman who was like, don't do drugs. You, you could overdose, you could die. It was a powerful message you know, that day and the times that we heard it and the stories that we heard. But, you know, something Malcolm Gladwell talks about, and um, I think it was outliers. He talked about the stickiness factor. And those messages never had a stickiness kind of feeling to them. So, yeah, they were powerful that day. But that week, we were doing the same things. We were still drinking. Um, I remember there was one, a really powerful one, about drinking and driving where they had an ambulance come and they reenacted the entire scene as if there was a drunk driving accident. And I remember kids saying like, oh my gosh, it was so powerful. And it was, it was something I had goosebumps and people cried and, you know, people still drank and, and drove, you know, when prom season came around. And I think about that a lot as why didn't those messages actually stick with me? And I think part of it was because no one ever said, alcohol, your mental health, there's a connection. So that light bulb never really went off as to thinking, oh, this is making me feel 10 times worse and it's not solving any issues or any problems. It's making them worse. So, okay, so this is something I should take more seriously is not just drinking because I don't want to die. It's drinking. I should probably rethink this and talk about this and be honest with myself because I can see how it's hurting me, but especially having depression as well. So um, yeah, now I, I really didn't look at it as a, oh, I need to stop because of this. It was more so of a, all right, I need to slow down and make sure I don't get too drunk or embarrass myself too bad. But progressively, again, it just got worse and worse leading up to my uh, senior year of high school. Yeah. And I, I love that you talk about that connection between the mental health and the substance abuse, because you know what, you make a really good point. And for two people who, you know, speak in general, let alone sometimes to students and stuff, I'm always sitting there or standing, usually thinking, how do I make this from just a powerful moment to an actual change in behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it is one thing to have someone come into a school and give an emotional talk. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and it is a great thing when they do that. But the problem is, if nothing changes, was it 100% worth it? And I think that's how you do it. I don't, people have told me before, oh, well, kids don't want to change. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't think that's true at all. Um, I found young adults are more open to change than most of the adults that I know. Um, I think you have to <laughs> explain to them, because that's being looked at when I was in high school. I was looking at that as a fun thing to do. If you can give me a logical reason and explain to me how that's actually not helping me, I'm open to that. But no one had really explained to me that, OK, well, you know, the pros or the cons are going to outweigh um, the pros. And for me, yeah, unfortunately, 
you know, I actually started for a different reason. It was not for a party. Um, it really was because um, I had been convinced that, uh, you know, weed would be a good treatment, quote unquote, self-treatment for my mental health things that I was experiencing. Um, I was actually terrified of alcohol for that reason. I couldn't find any legitimate reason that this would help me with my issues. Um, and, you know, I didn't realize, but over time, those things were just making what I was going through 10 times worse. It wasn't helping the situation, unfortunately. Um, and even if, I mean, there's medical marijuana out there. Listen, who am I to say that that's not the right answer for someone's depression? Um, but buying it from the street dealer is not the same as getting prescribed <laughs> a card by a doctor and learning how to properly use it, my friends. You know, that, that's a lot different. Um, so, I mean, it's crazy how much um, we've actually been going in for quite a while here already. I want to get to the point, though, because I know the alcohol. Uh, I don't want to fast forward too much if, if there's something you need to mention beforehand. But I remember when I've heard you speak in person, I remember a powerful moment when a bunch of alcohol was found um, by your parents. How did we get to that point where you go from ninth grade, we're going to a party. And of course, high school logic, by the way, oh my God, when you said that, I thought you were going to say the upper class and we're like, oh, we have to get this guy out of here because it's, you know, <laughs> his dad works at the school. High school logic, though, okay, let's get him as drunk as possible. That is the, oh my gosh, 180 yeah. degrees away from what it should have been. Um, but anyway, how does it go from this stupid thing that I mean, like you said, it, it really this was kind of something, an activity that was unrelated to the mental health stuff. How does it go from that to, you know, having a bag of alcohol like I know that um, you eventually had kind of just hiding in your uh, closet, I believe it was your car? Right. Yeah. Um, I think as I got older, I, I think there's a social currency that comes with having alcohol, uh, being able to say, you know, oh, I have alcohol. We can go to a party. We can go wherever we want to. And there was something about that that I enjoyed being able to have to make sure, okay. And I would always tell myself, it's like, oh, no, I only have this alcohol in my car because wherever I go, I can, I can bring alcohol with me and everyone's happy. Or, but I, I never thought to myself, man, am I really keeping this for other people? Or am, I'm too embarrassed to say that I'm actually day drinking uh, at a certain point. Um, am I too embarrassed to say I'm drinking by myself at a certain point? And so there were a lot of things that I wouldn't say, but I would do. And I think drinking was one of those things where I hid a lot. You, um, some people might have been able to see it if they were to see me at a party. But um, there were plenty of times where I tried to hide that and pretend like I'm just having a good time. I'm not depressed about anything. I'm not sad. I'm just trying to get drunk. That's it. And you can wear that mask only so long before people start to see through that. For my parents, they knew something deeper was going on because of the amount that they found in my car, uh, because of the uh, times where I just came home and they could tell that I had been drinking, that it went from, they could tell it wasn't just a, oh, you know, I'm just doing this to fit in or just to go to parties, that it became something that was actual part of a behavior. That's definitely when you have a huge issue is when you just say, okay, this is one of the ways that I cope with things or to get things off my mind. Yeah, you know, I remember I went to a um, behavioral hospital when I was actually my junior year of high school. I went and I remember the woman who was doing the intake, she asked me what I did when I felt depressed. And I, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but, years probably, but she asked me that. And my first response was I drink. 
And like thinking about that now, like <laughs> like being sober today and and like being able to talk about that and to have a support system. So like thinking about that now at 30 is like that's wow that's a huge red flag yes (laughs) that to be the first thing to come out of my mouth but I was also just being honest at the time of where I was and what I was doing uh so yeah I think once it got to the point where my parents found that amount of alcohol they knew it was bigger than just a oh I'm just doing this it was more of a behavior more than just a every once in a while type of activity got it and yeah I mean it is (laughs) that would be a (laughs) Probably not so great answer for anyone at any age to <laughs> respond with, right? Let alone, you, you know, junior year of high school saying that I drink with that. So, um, and, and it's kind of funny because, you know, I think only people that have, only me and you could sit here and, and laugh about this, right? Because we're not actually laughing at it. It's just like the irony of, oh my gosh, I, I cannot believe <laughs> that was my answer to that question. Um, so, how did you end up getting caught with this large amount of alcohol in the car? Like what was the thing that led up to that? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a big, what if moment is uh, I was going to, I had been nominated for playoffs for golf um, my senior year of high school. And I was going to play a practice round and my dad said he would take me from school to the golf course. And he went into my car to get my golf clubs as soon as he looks into my trunk, you can see a duffel bag that was just full of alcohol that I had. And he didn't say anything immediately when I got into the car. He didn't mention it. He didn't say anything on the way to the golf course or on the way back. But that actually is how my dad found that alcohol. And during the time that I was golfing, I remember thinking when I saw him after I finished my round that he looked exhausted. And I asked him, why he looks sad because he just appeared sad so I asked him why he's sad and he just said no it's it's been a long day I'm tired but the thing I didn't know was that during the time I was golfing my dad was calling my therapist he called my mom called my sister he called a few different people family members wow. to ask how do I approach Jordan about this alcohol that I found uh, so it was a really really um thoughtful and mindful way as to how to approach me by talking to multiple different people. But I know he, he and my mom talked for a very long time over the phone about how they were just going to have this conversation with me. And it's something that the way I reacted to seeing that duffel bag had more to do with seeing that bag more than my parents' reaction in the way that they were talking to me because they were incredibly respectful and incredibly thoughtful with what they were saying to me. Yeah. And that's, um, it is at least in my experience when I had gotten caught uh, using or abusing something, um, it's a multifaceted thing with why it makes you feel like crap on one end. You feel awful that you're disappointing your parents. You're like, what the heck? Like, this is just, they're worried, man. You know, they're like, what the heck's going on? And then number two, for me, I had, you know, such a problem at one point, that I'm worried that I just can't even, I'm like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to do this for you know, a few <laughs> days or a week or whatever um, until I can, you know, lay low or whatever. So it's just kind of a, a really intense thing um, that happens. And I know um, if I remember correctly, it was that night in particular with the car um, that would kind of lead to 
for, and again, not putting words in your mouth, but from what I've heard, uh, probably something that was one of the most, if not the most impactful moments of um, your life. So how did that moment play out when you got back home um, from the golf thing? And ironically, of course, you're doing something good at that time. I'm sure that made it even tougher um, with your dad, right? It's not like you're sitting there, you know, you've dropped out of all your sports. You're, I mean, you're there doing something <laughs> impressive, so that makes it even tougher. Um, what, what happens when, when you get home um, from the, the golf? Yeah, I, I was actually feeling good because it, it was a, a round, went well. I was, I was happy and I was excited for the playoffs. Uh, I'd actually just been nominated to homecoming court too, so I was kind of excited about that as well. And, uh, and so I, I get home and uh, I just had this feeling in my head that something was going on deeper with my dad than just being tired. I get home and I see my mom and she's on the couch and she looks really emotional. And so I asked her what's wrong and she said nothing. I'm just, I'm just tired. And there was a sense of kind of panic that came over me because I knew something happened, but I wasn't sure what yet. And that's when my dad walked in and he um, drops the duffel bag full of alcohol in front of me. And he asked me if all of it was mine because there were, several different bottles that were in there and uh i said yeah they're mine he basically just said we want you to get help um there's a phone number that you can call and just want you to talk to someone and to, to get help and he left because he wanted to go get my car from school uh, and it's about a 10 minute walk about a five minute drive back <clears throat> so he left my mom i talked to her and i said you know, I'm sorry for being such a screw up, a mess up. And he said, it's not your fault. It's going to be okay. And yeah, that was the night I, I went into my room and, you know, it's, there are definitely, there are two moments in my life that, that changed everything. But um, that night was definitely one of them. And it's, it's 2.5 seconds that I'll, I'll, I don't remember, but that was the night that I, I went out of my nine story uh, bedroom and, when I, I hit the ground, there's only uh, two things I remember. I remember hitting the ground because it was such a sudden stop because you're going, you're going 60 miles per hour. So it's just such a sudden stop. And the other thing was just the, the helicopter was so loud. The propellers were just so loud. <clears throat> and I remember that, but I don't remember actually going out the window. Um, so I wake up and I remember being, I remember hearing voices and feeling like everything was a dream. I remember seeing faces. I remember hearing voices and their laugh. And I could remember hearing what they were saying. And I didn't know how to respond because everything just felt like a dream. And what I, I didn't realize is the laughs and the people that I heard and, and could picture it, that was them coming to visit me when I was in a coma for five days. And then uh, I was in the ICU for two weeks. So during that time period, I know I'm surrounded by people that I know. There were teachers. I remember hearing my uncle, my my aunt. I remember hearing all of this. You wake up in a hospital and it's 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 one of the strangest things I, I can ever think of is waking up in a hospital, <clears throat> seeing a feeding tube going down your nose, a trach <laughs> was in my throat. So I can't talk. <clears throat> and I had no idea actually what a trach was. So I, I had no idea why I didn't have a voice. 
-hmm. uh, the external fixator on my left leg. My left wrist is wrapped up like I'm about to go like in, into a boxing match or something. And all the nurses know my name. That was the part that freaked me out the most. <laughs> uh, outside of all the scars and all the hardware, nurses knew my name. The doctors knew my name. And they were talking to me as if they had known me for like weeks. But in a way they did. Because yeah. by the time I like woke up and was actually came to, it was almost a month of being in there. And I had no answers. Like no one, no one told me what happened because they weren't supposed to. The doctors, the psychiatrists at the hospital really wanted to see if I would remember it on my own at any given point in time. So I was asked every single day by nurses, do you remember what happened? Do you know why you're here? And I would always say, no, I just remember a helicopter ride and I remember hitting the ground. That's all I remember. And they would ask me every single day and you know, it wasn't until my sister, you know, Tara was visiting and, you know, it was, it was one of the nights where it was just us two and it, it didn't happen often because there was always someone in the room, either nurse, doctor, but uh, I look over at it and I mouthed to her because it was two and a half months before I could talk again. So, you know, I mouthed to her what happened and you know, she says I went out of my window. She tells me I was sober and that no one else was in the room. And, you know, there's two things you have to accept at that point. When you find out you fell nine stories, you have to accept physically your body is never going to be the same again. And there is no point in arguing against any doctor who says, I'm never going to walk again. That's understandable, devastating injuries. The second thing you have to accept is that it's a, a suicide attempt. Now, if, if someone asks you what happened, if they see that you're in a wheelchair, if you, if they see that, you know, I'm, I'm on crutches, someone might ask, hey, what happened? And of course, I could just say a nine-story fall. That, that's all that happened. But it happened. You know, it was a suicide attempt. And there was really no reason in my mind to be dishonest about that, to lie about it, and to not accept it. But accepting those two things at 18... Looking back, I have no idea how or, or why I reacted in the way that I did of just a being grateful to be alive, but it was because I was grateful to be alive. It was probably because my sister is the one who told me what happened. It's probably because at that point when I was told I would never walk again or get out of a hospital bed, it was kind of a relief to think, all right, well, if that's it and no one else thinks I'm going to do anything outside of this. Anything I do from this point forward is going to be what I consider a success and a win. Because if I can just wheel myself in my own wheelchair, I will consider that a win. If I can walk with a walker for only 10 feet at a time, to me, that will be a win. That would be awesome. And I will appreciate that. And I will, I will never take that for granted. And that's what I decided at that moment in time was that I'm grateful to be alive, but I will never take anything I ever had or have for granted again. Uh, and so, yeah, that was the beginning of that kind of process and journey. Wow. Um, I've heard this now, um, uh, honestly, probably four or five different times. Um, I know I've only heard you speak once, but again, I, I've listened to different things um, th that you've done. And, and each time it gives me chills. Um, it's one of those stories that just hits you in that kind of way. Um, I know it's a complete side story, but uh, the other thing that would always, always, gave me chills and I think I've only actually heard this maybe twice but 
um, was when your uh, mom, you know, basically said that I, I, I don't want to tell your story, but the part about, you know, potentially losing, um, I think it was one of your legs. I don't know if it was both, but one yeah, and yeah. wanted to do a, a basically a night of prayer. Um, <laughs> and lo and behold, the doctors came back in the next day. I mean, what the heck is that, man? Yeah, it was an awkward, awkward conversation. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I mean, there's just so much of your story where and the things that you've been able to go on and do um, and you do it with a level of humility that, you know, I rarely see um, with someone who has done the things that you've done. Um, it's very hard for me to believe that, you know, you're not totally supposed to be here. Um, I, I 100 percent there is some believe that there is something higher. Um operating through you uh, to serve um, others um, and do that in a graceful way. So I think that's an amazing thing that, you know, one that you were able to accept, of course, Hey, these are devastating injuries from that. Um, But I think you've said it yourself before, right? Like it's actually amazing the recovery that you've had uh, considering that type of jump, correct? Like you've actually had really good um, luck with a lot of the recovery. Oh man. I, geez. Yeah, it was, um, you know, with surgery every Monday, Wednesday, and and Friday, and uh, the the other, I remember the guy, and he's he's a great doc. he's an incredible surgeon doc. I mean, that's one of the reasons, you know, I I survived and can even lay on my back and sit down is because of the same doctor who said they were going to have to cut off my leg. Sure, but yeah, I, I remember that day. I remember, you know, I my mom said something to the effect of, you know how you respond right now in a negative way unfortunately is not going to change the outcome but all we can do is try and stay positive and have faith so that when the outcome is here we can smile and we can laugh and we can say wow it's amazing to have a leg and she would say stuff like that to me that was just like man you it's a, it, there were a lot of great life lessons in there of no matter what I do cry tonight, if I get angry, if I'm upset and shouting, no matter what I do, my, what my reaction is in that moment, it's not going to change what that doctor comes says to me the next day. Uh, and, and there were just so many little things like that, that <laughs> kind of went into all of this, but it's a good reminder. All this came so close to never happening. Uh, it, everything just from, surviving that fall to being able to talk again to mentally still mentally still being that same person that my my parents knew Uh, and so you know for me one of the things I always say is um, I hated the spelling chart the alphabet chart that I had when I was in the hospital because it was so frustrating trying to communicate just by spelling things one letter at a time Mm -hmm. But my mom made me keep it. I still have it to this day because she said the first time that I spelled out a sentence of something, she knew I was still me and that she still had her son. Uh, And so it's, it, there's just so many little things like that throughout this entire journey. Or even my, my dad's favorite story is my, the four plates of my jaw because the, the surgeon said to him, um, we believe he broke two um, parts of his jaw and we're probably going to have to do the, all of it from the outside of his mouth. We don't think we can do it from the inside. And so the surgery took, I think an hour longer than it was supposed to. 
so the surgeon wheels me up and um, I have something that was over my face and he looks at my dad and he said, your son actually broke his jaw in four different places. We had to put four plates in his, in his jaw. And my dad looked and he, he went to move the cloth that was around my face. And he looked at the doctor and he looked, he, he was like, well, what happened? Cause all that really my face was just a little puffy. My cheeks were puffy. And the uh, surgeon looked at him and he said, we did all the mouth, we did all the work, sorry, from the inside of his mouth. It's the best work I've ever done. My dad cried. He hugged the doctor. He, I mean, the whole hospital could hear my dad wailing of just, just wow. pure happiness just to have his son's face. Um, and so, man, it just, talk, just talking about it, it, br- it brings me back to that moment of realization that I'm incredibly grateful for being able to do what I am today. It's even just walking around and getting around, you know, my fiance and I live on the third floor of uh, an apartment. And so I usually take the stairs and on the days where like today I'm doing laundry and the days I'm doing laundry and I'm going up the three flights of stairs and thinking, ah, man, I'm tired. He stepped back and think about just the, the doctors, what they said, what my parents were told, and, and uh, this is only, what, 12 years ago that they were told this to be getting around in the way that I am now. I'm just so lucky and, and fortunate to be able to. And I, again, it's just something I never take for granted. Sure. You had said um, before you shared that, that that was one of the most um, two important moments of your life. I have to ask, man, what the heck was the other <laughs> moment that with that? Yeah, no, so... Um, my suicide attempt was the um, the end of September of 2007. And my dad gets an email from a reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper, October 18th. Think about that. That's not even, that's, I'm just getting out of the ICU. And this reporter has the cojones to, email my dad and ask if he could interview me. Yeah. The epitome of too soon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, geez. And, and so the, just the guts to be able to even send that email, but he said, and, and he kind of had it in cause he knew someone, the mom of one of my friends that went to my high school. And so I was like, all right, well, you know, I'll, I'll send this email to my dad and send it to my dad and he reads it. He looks over it and he said, uh, Mike, I'll give you a email once my wife and I talk. And Mike Vitez is the name of the, the uh, journalist. And he says, all right, I'm going to China for two weeks. Uh, please let me know your answer. Uh, so my, as you can imagine, my mom wanted nothing to do with this. She's a mother. This is within two weeks of this happening. There, there's absolutely no way that she's going to allow her son to do an interview with uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. Right, right. So she's a a no. The therapist was like, are you kidding me? An interview, he just attempted suicide, doesn't even know what happened yet. You really want him to do an interview. So she was not on board. My sister was kind of on the fence about it. I think my dad, my dad knew I was going to do it. He he pretends like he didn't know, but he knew <laughs> I was going to do it. <laughs> so um, my dad asked me if I would talk to this uh, journalist that he had just met. 
and it was, he was like, yeah, I just met him in the, and I'm, I was too out of it to kind of put pieces together. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you just randomly meet someone in the, the lobby at a hospital? But he says, yeah, I just met this guy, Mike. He seems like a, a nice guy. He just wants to talk to you. And uh, Mike Vitez walks in my room and he has the, he just looks like a journalist. He just looks like a reporter. He's got like the, the trench, like the tan trench coat on. He's got his glasses up. He just has his little notepad and his pen. He does. He's you know. He doesn't look like this. <laughs> this guy who's going to take advantage of us by using my story and going off in some different. You know, he's not writing for a major magazine. He just wants to write this story. Sure, and that's it. Uh, and so he he sent a letter over to his editor and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing this story. This is the background and the." editor you know writes him back and says so how is his family dealing with his death and you know mike emails him back and says no he's still alive and he's like i don't want you doing or working on any other story this is your story wow (laughs) so mike mike was at the hospital every day for three months he would come even on the days where i was not even awake i was out of it from surgery he would spend time with my friends. He would get their input. He would listen to them and what what they were feeling. He would go home with my parents. He would have dinner with them just to try and get a feel for who I was as a person. So he wasn't just interviewing me to interview me. Like he really wanted to put together a really powerful piece, but he he did. He he ended up getting um, winning an award for that as well. I forget which one, but. Uh, yeah, so Michael come and we had to do this interview where I'm spelling everything out on an alphabet chart. <laughs> and after a while, we really got into a sink where he could finish my sentence. He knew where I was going with the thought. He knew exactly what subject I would be able to speak on and talk about. But then there were times where my dad w- warned him. He he's basically told Mike, hey, there are going to be times when all you say to Jordan is a word and he's going to give you back sentences or a paragraph. And there were times and that's what would happen is he would come and he would ask me one thing and he would get that smile, that grin on his face when he knew I was about to go off on some tangent as I'm (laughs) spelling everything out. And he would just, he would chuckle, he'd laugh and, and really enjoyed it. And so I don't know where life would be if I said no to that interview, because if I say no to my dad, my dad would never follow up again with it. My mom would probably, it would be a relief for her. My therapist, the same thing. My dad might've wondered what if, but he was only thinking about what would be best for me. Uh, So yeah, when that article came out in January of 2008, I remember the photographer was at the hospital. I was at a physical rehab hospital when this happened. And he uh, he was sitting next to me and we were just talking and and going over things. And I asked him, is this going to be in the local section? And he looked at me as if I was like, (laughs) if I asked him this crazy question and he's like, no, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's, it's the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. It'll be the main story. And at 18, you're thinking like, one, I didn't realize, and this was back when people still read the newspaper, so that was cool. <laughs> but, 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay. But even at 18, I don't even think I realized how many people read the newspaper and actually sat down and looked at it. Because to this day, and this happened the other day, I was speaking at a school and I told the story and there are people to this day who will come up to me and, and tell me, I remember when that article came out. I can see the cover of that newspaper like it was yesterday. Uh, and so I knew it was coming out. I knew there was going to be some type of feedback. I wasn't sure what it would be. And it is, it's emotional to read. Uh, there's a reason why Mike won an award for that piece because it is so detailed. It goes into the police reports. It goes into text, me- text messages, just quotes from my friends during that day sure. when it happened, like how they felt, what they, what they were fe- like, what they were going through, and and all these things. He gets all these stories and combines it and puts it into this like forty minute read, where you, and, and this is the other big risk with Mike, um, because I always say this when we present, we do one presentation together a year to a Temple um, journalism school um, class. And we basically tell the story of how we did this interview. And I say the biggest risk Mike took on this story is that there was no, there was no promise. It was going to be a good ending. I hadn't graduated high school yet. I hadn't been told I'd be able to get around, walk around when he first started this. There was really no promise that the ending of this story was going to be uplifting, but he still went through with it. And that's when all of a sudden you get one email and you get two emails and people say how they can relate to it. And, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this at some point, you realize that your story is only your story until the moment you tell it. And then once someone else can read it, they can touch it. They can see it on a newspaper. They can, they can internalize some of it. They can compare it to their life. They look at it with perspective based on what they're going through. And all of a sudden, your story is their story because they can choose what message they want to get out of it. They can choose what part they see to be the most uplifting. Uh, they can see what they think is the point of your story and the part that really gets to them and speaks to them. And that's not even necessarily you planned on. When people come up to you and they say, wow, I love your story. I could really relate to it. You, you didn't have that person in mind when you were writing out or when you're thinking out what you're going to say. Yeah. But because it's now someone else's story, you can say, wow, this is bigger than just me. This is bigger than just what I said or just one article. This is something that's bigger than me. And, and for me personally, that felt like, mental health, sharing our stories, and coming through at the other end of it, but still just being honest about what we can still struggle with, but how we try and get better. Once that article came out, that was kind of the beginning of, of all of that. But, and I'll end with this, the, the, um, the one thing no one warns you about before you tell your story is that you're, you're overstepping the line of normalcy. Now, athletes, when athletes get drafted number one pick, they understand their life is no longer, I mean, hell, once they're in high school and there's videos of them dunking or there's videos of them playing football, having a, a kickoff, punt return, 
and it gets all these different views, they know that at some point their life is not going to be normal because of the eyes and attention that they have on them. So a lot of people, that goes into movies, music, all of that, they know they're stepping over the line of normalcy. At no point do you ever think, because I'm doing this interview, my life is never really going to be normal again. It's not going to be the same life that I had before because of your name being out there, because being able, people being able to Google you and, and read your, your story. But I don't regret one minute of it, one second of it. Every experience I've had from that interview moving forward has been incredible. And the crazy thing, Evan, is I never asked for any of it. I just said yes, you know, because what else, what else was I going to do? I, I had nowhere else to go. I, I felt like I couldn't just cover anything up anymore. I felt like I couldn't lie about what I went through. I just said yes. And, and from saying yes once, twice, however many times here I am, you know, 11 years later, still sharing my story and speaking to students. And it's bigger than just me. I'm just here for the ride, man. And I, I feel <laughs> fortunate to be here. I, I totally, for, well, first of all, that was awesome. I definitely understand now why that was the second, uh, you know, up there uh, tied with the most impactful moment. That was awesome. Um, I loved what you said because I absolutely have experienced how powerful our stories can be. And Jordan, that is the reason I started the podcast. And it's the reason I finished the book. I only started the book because I was going to write this thing in hopes to become a speaker. Once I started doing that consistently, I said, oh, I don't need the book. In the ultimate turn of like irony, I ended up wanting to finish this because I already got the speaking thing. I'm saying these little details that I would think related to no one. And like you, you said it so well, you know, it's not just your story. It does relate to other people. Of course, we have our own unique experiences overall. No one has Jordan Burnham's story 100%. But even myself, I can relate to 80% of the stuff that you said tonight. And when you start realizing that, I'm like, I am going to put every little detail that I might be scared <laughs> to share in this thing because someone out there can relate to this and they need to hear that. All my little bouts of hypochondriasis, my little fears, thinking for a year that I was running around with a dislocated jaw when I'm like 15, 16 years old, which made no sense. But that was a real fear that I had. And those little things like that, yeah, they're, they're very powerful. Um, and it's so cool because people had asked me before, you know, they're like, oh, well, who are you going to do the podcast episodes with? You need to have again, this is a little different because, I mean, literally, this is the first time that we're having a quote unquote, you know, more big name person on this podcast like well how are you going to do it without you know big name people i said dude you know screw you and screw that this isn't about (laughs) that kind of stuff that's great if we can get that but the stories are what matter and nothing no matter who you are now does not make your story any uh lesser or better right um i think the benefit of having someone like you on is that yours is very clear concise um it's very well tailored and i think this is a really great episode for people by the way um thank you for spending so much time here because this is already taking the record i think by uh, 10 or 15 minutes now is the longest episode um and unfortunately <laughs> i don't want to keep stealing your time but the most important part of these podcast episodes as i'm sure um you would understand is the resolution to these things and clearly uh, you would not be doing what you're doing now if you had not made 
um, some real transformation and real changes. And we can keep that, man. I mean, listen, I'm here with you. You can go as in much depth as you want. I know from a listener's perspective of the people that started out with us at one minute into this thing are still listening right now. I, I know that for a fact. So however much detail you want to give with that is fine. But I would really appreciate um, if for the final thing here, we could touch on some of the things that ended up working for you, because I'm sure the approach had to be pretty different once that moment in your life happened. Of course, I know you had to do a lot of physical rehab, but I'm going to guess there was some stuff that needed to be worked on uh, mentally as well. Yeah, I mean, there's just there is so much that happened all at once. And it was I wouldn't say necessarily overwhelming because I think I was too I was too young to understand. Even like going to speak to Congress at eighteen, I didn't you know, I, I didn't know. I, I I was you know I felt fortunate to go and to, to speak and share my story, but I didn't. I'm eighteen. I had been paying attention too much to the whole political scene, so I feel like at a, such a young age, I didn't even necessarily grasp how much was going on, which was probably a really good thing. But for me, it was mainly just physical therapy, just trying to get to be more independent because I tell people all the time, the goal was never to walk again. It was it was never to walk because it didn't seem like that was a reality. It was just to get more and more independent. So that went from walking with crutches to one crutch to two canes to one cane to eventually being able to walk independently, but that still took four years to be able to do. Wow. So that was all happening, but I was still happy with it. I was still happy with the progress. Then 19 speaking is, it's, it's, it's so weird because you're just a little older than the high school students. You definitely relate to the middle school students because you, you're older, but still kind of get it. I think part of me when I first started speaking I knew I was I was able to be somewhat entertaining with the stories. I knew there were going to be some things that were funny, but I didn't grasp just even the smallest tools that come along with public speaking. So the laughs that I was getting, I, I think looking back on it, if you would have asked me, Jordan, why did that presentation go well? I wouldn't know what I wouldn't necessarily know what to say. Or Jordan, what did you what did you change differently in this last one? When I was 19, I'd say, I don't know. I just went and I, I presented and I hope it went well. But now look, looking at it and how I look at public speaking, pausing. I know, I know how to pause. I know how to read a room of, okay, I need to speed up this part a little faster, get through some things so I can get really to the main part and really take my time explaining some things or even just the Q&A. I mean, that's one of those things. It's almost like you have to do it so many different times before you really kind of get comfortable with answering so many questions. So after a while, even if there are questions you haven't thought about or hadn't heard before, you are still just in the rhythm of answering questions, getting to the next one. All those things, I'm not even trying to figure out at 19. I'm just trying to memorize what I'm going to say. I'm trying to figure out what how the introduction should be what my first five and last five minutes is going to be but trying to figure that out is it's interesting and it's I knew I had a story but I didn't have a presentation yet and I was still able to get out there and spread my message and very very thankful to Minding Your Mind for helping me with that turning a story into a presentation 
that could affect everyone in that audience. Uh, so if I went at 19 and just said, I have depression, I attempted suicide. I'm hitting a small percent of that audience when it comes to what they can relate to. Correct. But if I go from coping skills to switching schools to transitions, the relationship I have with my sister and talking to her, seeing a therapist, medication, all of these things, now all of a sudden you got so much more of your audience that's really locked in. That's something that took me time to kind of understand and to grasp. That was learning experience in itself at 19. Then all, all at the same time, I was planning on going to school. I was at community college. I 100% knew at 19 that I was going to be a broadcast journalist, uh, going to broadcast journalism, and I was going to be a sports broadcaster for ESPN. I already knew that was going to happen <laughs> at 19, so I had everything figured out. And then it wasn't until that second year of being at community college that uh, pretty much all the bio stuff you read all happened within a span of like eight months. So that was Dr. Phil, Good Morning America, the early show, CNN, ESPN was the big one. Uh, People Magazine, Sports Illustrated, all happened within eight months when I was 20, 21. You got on ESPN (laughs) in a different way, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so I I ended up getting on it. Yeah, it was so it was. And I get I think even then I was too young to really understand or grasp just how how big all of those things were to happen all at once. But I also look at it now and I, I, I think I always just expected one thing was going to come after the next, you know, one interview, there's going to be another interview and one presentation is going to turn into another presentation. And the more you do this and the more you start to just love what you do for a living and, and love your job, I, I don't take any of it for granted anymore. I, I, I always look at it as I don't know if this is going to be my last presentation that I get to give this year. So I'm going to make sure this is the best one possible. Uh, last year when I, I did an interview with Anderson Cooper, man, there was a time in my life where I just would have went in there and shook hands, would, really wouldn't talk to anyone, just did the interview and walked away. But I went into that, I went into that studio thinking there's a chance I could never do another TV interview again. I made sure I talked to every person that was in that studio. Um, I, I shook, hey, I was happy. I was smiling. I was talking to people beforehand. I was talking to people after because so much of this, you never know when it's going to be your last presentation, when it's going to be your last TV interview, magazine interview, whatever it is. Um, so much of this, I never want to take for granted. So I will always treat it that way and treat everything with as much care as I can. I can't say that I was thinking that in 1920, 21. I probably wasn't. Um, I'm sure there was a part of me that was still humble. <clears throat> but you said something that is is important and it's perspective. Once you get a little bit of that, once you get a little bit of life, you know, just lessons, you get really a, a clearer way of telling your story you get a clearer way of, of looking and interpreting things. You get a, a clearer way of just how to go about everyday life. So realizing that you're not making my job just 100% of my life, making sure I balance all those things out. That's that entire 11 year span of speaking and sharing my story. I love watching how fast I rush things when I was younger. 
Like I love it's so awkward and I hate it, but I love seeing it because <laughs> I because that to me it's just funny to look at. <clears throat> and I I'm glad I can look at and just learn all of those things. I just try and learn from every single year when I do a presentation, when I look at my PowerPoint, when I, I talk to people, I always just try and learn. I always the great the presentations that go really well are awesome. The ones that don't go great, I learn the most from. That's what I kind of that's how I kind of look at life now as um always giving my best effort, but I feel like the the person I am today is because of a lot of mistakes that I made. Uh a lot of things I I didn't necessarily see at the time, not having a lot of clarity, not having a lot of perspective, but going throughout the time now where I can talk to speakers who are younger than me and just, I'm not trying to give anyone advice. I'll just tell you. Hey, I'm, for me. Hey, I'm a speaker younger than you and I'm listening. So I don't care if everyone else tunes out right now. You hit me. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I can only give, you know, my advice as far as what I've done and, and what I've seen, you know, I had, I was talking to one of the speakers for Minding Your Mind and we were talking about, she asked me about speaking to student athletes. And um, it was funny because before the presentation, I wanted to be like, uh, I kind of want to tell her it's a tough crowd, but I don't want to throw her off. And afterwards we got a chance to talk. And um, I basically just said, there were certain times, there were certain audiences that are really difficult. And um, college student athletes is a perfect example. <laughs> um, if you're doing an evening presentation for college athletes, one, it's mandatory. So it's not a, oh, I think I might check this out, college presentation. Two, the other thing is they are so exhausted by the end of the day that no matter what joke you tell, <laughs> no matter how much great body language you have, how positive you look, there are going to be so many in the audience that are like, I'm over this. I'm tired. I need to go to bed. Sure. <laughs> and so, it, but I didn't look at it like that. The first time I took, took a personal, I was like, oh man, I should have that one joke I got to work on. It's like, yeah, sometimes things aren't your fault. It's not, it's out of your control. Um, and I feel like sharing those stories are the really important ones. So that when another speaker goes into the exact same audience that I've experienced before and they think, oh, man, maybe it was on me or maybe something I did wrong. I'm always happy to say, no, I know exactly who you're talking about, where you were. And so much of it is out of our control. Gotcha. Wow. Okay. Um, (laughs) What are obviously sounds like and I think this is very real for a lot of us. Sharing your story is healing in and of itself. And that's been a powerful thing probably in your own transformation and getting better and and feeling better. Um, I obviously have some insight to the things that you've been doing, but I know that I I believe if I'm not mistaken, um, you're still using medication to this day, if I'm not mistaken. And right. Correct. And you use a counselor, right? So how did those things end up getting kind of figured out and and what's the routine now with both of those areas? I think just maturity. Um, not not being as defiant as I was back in high school. Um, my The psychiatrist I see now is the person I go to for talk therapy and for medication. I'm sure okay. that has a lot to do with me being more open and honest about medication um, during our therapy sessions. I think also, too, just 
I knew exactly what I did wrong leading up to that suicide attempt. And I felt as though if I learned nothing from it, then there there's, you have to grow and you have to learn from certain things. And for me, moving forward after that suicide attempt, one of the things I knew I needed to do to take more seriously was medication and being honest with my therapist. So I did switch to the psychiatrist that I've had since then. That's been really, really helpful for me, but it's been an everyday taking this seriously kind of thing. And one of, I'll, I'll definitely give credit to one of my friends who, who did, one of my best friends, Brooke, she just did an incredible job of making me look at medication and how I look at my uh, mental health a lot differently is we were out one time and we were going to a club because this was when, back when I was like cool and did things like go to clubs and bars. And <laughs> so we were at a club and, and um, Brooke has diabetes. And so she had her insulin pump and you could kind of see it. So I, I was very polite. I was like, hey, Brooke, I just want to let you know, see, I'm an insulin pump. She was like, I don't care. I have diabetes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is what I need to live. I am perfectly fine with someone saying that I have an insulin pump. I'm human. I have diabetes. I am not ashamed of it. I was like, holy crap, man. Well, she didn't have to yell at me that. <laughs> I, was, I was a little upset was about that. It was a great speech. <laughs> it, was, it was a touching moment, but... um she just made me look at it so differently and, and her talking about, yeah, with diabetes, like I could eat the same thing. I could drink the same thing, but the next week uh, I could feel completely different because of it. And it's like, man, and just conversations with her and just how comfortable she was within her, in her, her own skin and not being afraid or ashamed for people to see who she is. I was like, I, I really, really love that. I learned so much from her because of it. That's probably where a lot of that motivation came from to one, take my medication on a daily basis, but two, just not even be ashamed to talk about it or to, um, to share with people. I really don't mind whatsoever because I think it is difficult. People, it's tricky to talk about medication because one, you don't want to say, oh, this is the only way to do it. Two, you also want to be honest in saying, no, it's difficult finding the right medication because the side effects are not great. And so a lot went into me finally feeling comfortable in doing all of those things. But I think that's why uh, I mentioned kind of growth and maturity going along with that and being comfortable in my own skin, feeling like I could do those things finally, probably maybe like a year or two after my suicide attempt is when I really, and I was taking my medication consistently, but it's really when I got into talk therapy and really broke some things down, was completely honest about the way I was drinking, the way I was acting, the behaviors, all those things. And I think that's where a lot of that growth came from. That's awesome. All right. Are there any other um, little things, any maybe activities or whatever that you use um, to help you cope? And I'm not saying uh, no one's to interpret these things as legitimate ways of treatment, but even if it's art, music or something, or have there any things that you found that are particularly helpful for you? I um, So I play, my fiance and I play um, Sims on our laptops. And uh, we, we look like a bunch of dorks when we're doing it, but we're, we're <laughs> playing and we're like <laughs> talking about the characters and we're talking about the different places and restaurants we're building. And it's such an escape from reality 
but it comes from such a place of comfort. <laughs> we we don't have to necessarily talk about bills that are going on, um, events that are coming up that we're stressed about, you know, car inspections, any of those are fun stuff to talk about as adults. Wonderful. But <laughs> whenever we get a chance just to talk about something that's like an actual video game, we love being able to do things like that. Uh, to this day, I still, whenever I get to golf, I love being able to get on the golf course. It's something that's huge with me. Playing Xbox video games, I have to make sure I limit myself because that is a really slippery slope. Sure. Yeah, good <laughs> point. Good point. <laughs> uh, so I make sure that I, I watch exactly how long I've been playing video games. But that's something that I, I really enjoy too. But honestly, more than anything, I just like learning and, and kind of branching out. So for me, that a lot of times has to do with podcasts. I listen to all different types of podcasts to find out new things just about whether it's like fitness, whether it's politics, uh, sports, news, any of those things, I really love to learn about different things that, you know, I, I not necessarily think about, but never thought I would actually sit down and spend an hour listening to someone talk about. That's another huge thing with me. But I think watching movies is just my ultimate go-to for any type of escape something to make me laugh something to when i'm traveling i i definitely like to watch movies whenever i'm traveling on the plane or on the train i also like watching movies because I, I pick up little quotes that i just think are so perfect oh, <laughs> for, nice, like what nice. you and i do um so i was watching once upon a time in hollywood and it was a scene with leonardo dicaprio and his his character is talking to a, a young girl uh, played by Julia Butters. And she said this quote that I just, it, one, the way she delivered it was great, but she said, um, it's the actor's job to strive for 100% effectiveness. Naturally, we never succeed, but it's the pursuit that's meaningful. And like, I paused the movie. <laughs> I like paused the movie, rewound, and was like, I have to listen to that again. That was incredible. And it's it was it meant a lot to me hearing that quote because it to me, I think that's what so much of speaking is for me. So when I write something, I make a slide, I put something down for a presentation. No matter what kind of speech it is, I'm always thinking, all right, this has to be a hundred percent effective and I know it's not going to be I know it's not going to be perfect but that moment when I'm trying to memorize things that moment when I'm recording myself when I'm watching video of myself speaking so I can see what body language I need to kind of work on and improve the way I'm using my hands when I'm telling a certain joke all of those things are meaningful to me and I absolutely love the art of public speaking so I always I always love whenever I'm watching a movie and something just reminds me of that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool, too. I've heard it was just recently I was listening to a podcast and someone was talking about, um, you know, how much you can learn from the best movies. And it was actually it was a podcast on speaking um, and they were talking about, you know, you can learn. It's the way the stories are told. That is what they were referring to. It was like you can learn some of the best storytelling through great movies and things like that. And I'm not a huge movie guy. I'm not going to lie. Uh, most of my free time is spent, like you said, learning and podcasts. I love learning. I could, if you waved a magic wand, all the problems were solved in the world. I had all the money in the world. And you said, what would you do every day for the rest of your life? 
I would be learning um, and acquiring new skills probably until the day I died. I would do that the majority of my day, to be honest, um, from, you know, playing billiards to lifting weights to playing the piano would be a variety of things. So um, maybe I need to start doing that and I'd benefit from that a little bit. Um, okay. Wow. So we just went in, man. Um, I mean, seriously, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Because this Absolutely. Was, I like, I'm, I tell everyone in the beginning, I told you in the beginning, I'm always open to keeping it going so long as it's like a coherent thing that I think people are still going to be, you know, engaged with and things like that. And I don't think we lost anyone. Um, that's for sure. This has been super powerful. Um, your story is awesome. And it really is. It's inspirational, man. It's really cool to hear. Um, I guess. Well, I w- we definitely probably covered everything because that's normally the normally I always say I, I start and end on the. Uh, same first and last questions. And the last question I always ask is, is there anything we didn't touch on? But I mean, clearly we got a lot. So I'll, I'll curveball you with this one. What is the best moment you've ever had in your 10, 11 years as a speaker? Yeah, I would say the most, I would say the probably the most meaningful and most powerful moment for me as a, as a speaker but I think even just as a mental health advocate was so last year. So January of 2019, I get an email request to go speak to fifth graders who want to learn about depression. And I get that. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what music they listen to. I have no idea what like examples I can give of just life because they're only in fifth grade. What am I going to say, but I, I gave my presentation. It was a little more interactive than um, usual, but I gave my presentation. It was a great q and I really enjoyed you know, the conversation that we had. And I got in the car driving home and I was thinking, I hope they got something out of that. And I was actually able to find out exactly what they did. Because in June, I get a package in the mail and it's from the teacher of that class. And her letter said, we wanted to give this to you. Our students were so inspired by your message that they decided to write a book of poems to help people who suffer from depression. And they dedicated it to those who feel the unbearable. Wow. And Let, right. let's go, man. And this is all the people that saying that the kids don't listen. You got to be kidding me. Fifth grade. Yeah. Wow. Um, and the first and I remember when I left out of there, there was a kid who asked me for my autograph. And I was laughing when he asked me, I was like, you're not getting anything for this, man. But I <laughs> gave, I gave, gave my autograph. And I remember in that letter, she said, you might want to check out the first page. And it's that kid, he dedicated his poem to me. And in his drawing, he used my autograph at the very top of the page uh, and said that it was inspired, a poem inspired by Jordan Burnham. And I just got, <laughs> you just, Evan, you never know. You just don't. You, you, you have no idea what message you left. You have no idea what conversation goes on the minute you leave that school. But to not only hear what the message they came away with, to not only hear that conversation, but to then hold it in my hands to see a book put together by fifth graders to help people with mental health issues is just, I mean, that's what, that's why we do what we do. That's why we love our jobs is because we 
hopefully get to have a moment like that where we realize what we're doing is just planting a seed. And those kids, you have no idea what it's going to grow into. But when it grows into something like that, it's just beautiful. That's awesome. And that's so cool that, I mean, but you said that's just basically last year in 2019, right? Like, that's right, yeah. Still, after all this time, the most powerful <laughs> moment that you consider it, you know, who knows what's to come. So um, kind of just a, a final, it's not a real last question. It's a simple one. Like, do you, is this something that you plan to do indefinitely? Because you obviously have the story and speaking ability to do so. Or do you want to go into another career eventually? Like, what's your plan with that? Yeah, I um, I wasn't sure where this was going to go. So much of me was just saying, all right, well, I'll present and we'll see what happens after that. But I think over the years, because of the audiences that have been so diverse that I've had the opportunity to speak to, I've been able to, in fact, grow because of that. Uh, so I would say that this past year actually gave me a good glimpse into why I would really love to keep doing this. And that was I, I gave a, a few keynote speeches in the Boston area, and I knew I wanted to do something different. And uh, again, you really try and grow and, and you hope that you improve it as a storyteller and just someone that can communicate to your audience but for me, I was I was nervous. I'm like, man, I, I hope at some point I can improve even more. Uh, so what I was able to do for keynote speeches is I read a letter that I wrote to my 18-year-old self while I was in the hospital and telling my younger self everything that's going to happen, why I'm in that hospital, but all the good things that will come about after this moving forward. And I turned that into a keynote presentation of doing my usual one a little quicker, um, telling of my story. And then once I get to the part, the slide that is my suicide attempt, instead of going to the next slide, which is usually my injuries and what happened, it goes right into a slideshow that is really a, a picture slideshow that has images of the hospital, of my parents at the hospital, my sister visiting me my niece and nephew, and I go into this whole really story of here's what happened, but here's what's going to happen moving forward. When I was able to do that, when I was able to put that kind of together to to write that was emotional, to edit it as emotional, to edit it again a month or two later as emotional, it's that was a moment in time doing that where I realized there's another level I can go with sharing and speaking on my story. And if I can do little things like that along the way, then it's definitely something I would love to do for as long as possible. Cause I really, I love helping people because when you, especially students, cause when you see that student who's just, you talk to them afterwards and you can see that they're emotional, they don't see any hope. They feel like things can't get better. And when I look at that student, I see me and I know what that felt like. I know what that looked like. And I always hope that by sharing my story, I can at least give that student or whoever, whatever, like student, give them some hope for that day. Cause that's really all I needed in that moment in time. If I'm able, if I'm fortunate enough to still be doing that years from now, I will absolutely take the opportunity to. Wow. Awesome. Well, that's a heck of a way to uh, wrap this up. How can people 
if what is I'll put it this way. What is the most appropriate and professional way if they are interested in having you speak somewhere? Um, what is the most appropriate and professional way that they can get in contact with you? Yeah, uh, best way to get in contact with me or to, to book me for a presentation. Uh, if you go to mindingyourmind.org, you go to uh, book a speaker. You're able to fill out one of those forms and you can um, say that you would like to have Jordan Burnham come and speak to your school or organization, wherever it may be. Um, so, yeah, you can go to mindingyourmind.org and do that. And it's a pretty easy, uh, quick and simple process uh, to do that. For sure. And guys, yeah, just so because we've been saying it fast, it's, his last name is very simple. It's literally spelled Burnham. So B-U-R-N-H-A-M. Um, and that's how you can reach out uh, to him. Um, Jordan, I just got to say again, man, thank you. I mean, this is crazy. I don't think anyone's going to beat this. Most of my uh, <laughs> the podcast time frames aren't allotted for this amount of time normally. We just, right. yeah, so, um, I had nothing going on. I'm like, let's go. Like, I'll, I'll take this today. So um, I think you will hold the record for a while, my friend. Um, and what an appropriate person to do so. Um, thank you for you know just giving us your time. Because, guys, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have nothing like we don't pay the people to come on this podcast. You know, they come on. Um, because I send an invite out and say, hey, I- I'd love for, you know, XYZ person to do this. Um, and they either come on or don't come on out of the good of their heart. So um, that's that's awesome, man. And we can't tell you how much we appreciate that. Um, but, guys, that is going to be all for tonight. Um, again, you can check out uh, some of the other episodes we're releasing this February or depending on when you're listening to this. Um, we'll have plenty of more episodes out with other inspiring stories just like Jordan's. But. Um, tonight, you guys have been listening to the Overcoming Mental Health Challenges podcast with your host, Evan Transu, and our guest, uh, Mr. Jordan Burnham. Thank you guys so much for tuning in.